Hi everyone, and a massive welcome to the first in a brand new series of the CISO Experience. My name's Simon Linstead. I'm the founder of the InfoSec Live community and the host for the show today. Before we get started, a couple of things. For those of you watching live, we are live on LinkedIn and live on YouTube today. Please do like and subscribe. Please do jump in the comments. I want to try and make this as interactive as possible. Give you a bit of background about what the events are. The CISO experience is aimed at bringing some clarity by sharing best ideas and practice from our industry's leaders. And over the next 12 weeks, we've now got 12 guests lined up. The first of them is a very, very special guest indeed. He also happens to be uh, one of the clients from our main sponsor today, Bramfit Technology Labs, who also happens to be my employer, so a little bit biased. So without further ado, I'm going to play a little stinger and bring on our very first guest on the CISO experience, Dexter Casey, CISO of Centrica. Welcome, Dexter. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So before we go any further, are you okay to give our audience a little bit of background about yourself and where you've come from before you became the CISO at Centrica, Dexter? Yeah, sure. Oh, I've just seen somebody that I know has joined this chat. <laughs> well, let's, let's, bring, let's bring the chat up then. Um, personally, <laughs> it will completely distract me and I can't do two things at once, but it should be quite interesting. I think we've got a few people jumping in today. So I didn't expect us. I see Mehdi has uh, joined the, uh, the chat. We've worked together twice. You've got to be careful what you're saying now. Yeah. <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> okay, well, well, based on you knowing someone in the chat, let's have a more stripped-down version of your history, Dexter, shall we? Okay, well, okay, so um, I've been in security for about 20 years now, and um, and there's somebody else that I know. <laughs> I'm getting triangulated here. Yeah. <laughs> Right. So anyway, um, I started in security about 20 years ago. Um, I'd always been interested in, in the field of security, though. So I started like studying security um, when I when I was pre-university, um, which is, I guess, how people do it now. It wasn't how people did it then. Um, so I'm 46 now. Um, but I started really looking at into security about 15. Um, but I've been into computers my whole childhood. And um, there was very little knowledge available unless you actually worked in the field. And even if you worked in the field, you weren't really doing what we call security these days. You were just either administering a firewall or administering some kind of authentication system like Radius um, uh, to, you know, for remote access uh, authentication. Um, but I did manage to get hold of some decent books uh, on the field of security, um, like the original book was called Firewalls and Internet Security by, I think, Stephen Bellevin or something like that, his name was, and a couple of other things, including RFCs. There were RFC documents I used to read to sort of learn aspects of internet security and internet working. Was that, but, was, that led, was that led from what you were doing for work then, Dexter, or was that just out of your no, own? No, this was like when I was like 14, 15. Okay. So this is before I, I started working. But whenever I got work experience, um, it tended to be technical work experience. And in that work experience, I'd always gravitate towards um, uh, security. And I don't know if it was because I was lazy and I wanted to do something nobody else understood so they couldn't tell what I was doing, <laughs> or if it was just a genuine interest. I can't really remember. Um, but I remember having some, some jobs that started off like making cables, and it would always end up administering the firewall. Uh, and um, 
And so I've always gravitated towards it. But as I said, there wasn't a lot of information. So you had to sort of decide what you want to be good at. And so in those days, um, being a systems administrator, so a Unix systems administrator or a Linux systems administrator, because Linux was just coming out. Linux was still load, like, getting loaded off of floppy disks in those days. And you could run the whole Linux operating system on a, a floppy disk. Um, so I just I started getting to systems administration and um, shell scripting, Perl scripting, uh, understanding the kernel a bit more when Linux came out because you had to build your own kernels. Were you going to have a micro kernel or a monolithic kernel? And to be honest, I haven't really forgotten a lot of, of that stuff because I was lucky enough to get into um, trading application support as a, as a job. As a, it was actually, um, it was actually my third job. It's probably better if I tell you how I, what actually happened with university. I went to university and I hated it. Um, and I asked, um, I asked my lecturer how much money I would earn. I used to ask him this like every month, how much money am I gonna earn when I get this degree? Because I was like, why am I here? Um, and because um, I, was, I was also training, I was, I was doing sports, I was doing martial arts, I was doing other sports. Ha I was never at university basically, I was either working or training. And then I was sort of like doing my homework in like an hour. Uh, and then this concept of being an IT contractor came along and that, that allowed you at the time, this was before the year 2000. So you, you could, if you knew how to solve the year 2000 bug or said you could, you could get paid a lot of money. And so I did a bit of both. I kind of knew and I kind of said I did, knew. And you never had to fix it because it wasn't a real problem anyway. Um, but you could get paid loads of money. So I left university and um, didn't finish my degree. Never went back, never was tempted to go back, never found it particularly useful. Um, and never found it particularly limiting apart from on one or two occasions. But it hasn't stopped me from getting to where I am, um, which was made me very unpopular because my mum's a teacher. Um, I, think, you know, it's, I know there's a few people in the audience who have either just broken or, or trying to break in. And it's a, a huge mess at the moment, right? It's whether you need a degree, do you need a degree, don't you need a degree, do you need CompTIA, do you need something else? And it's it's refreshing to hear that you had the same experience of university and higher education that I did, Dexter. Yeah, it, it just I just, um, I like, I never enjoyed it, not for one minute. I don't know anybody that I went to university with. I don't even know anybody I went to school with now. I just didn't have any intention of school or university being particularly important to me when they weren't, apart from history, history I liked. History I liked and I'm very, very, I've got a very good memory. Um, what did you do at, what did you do at uni? Uh, business information systems. It wasn't history, was it? No, it wasn't history, no, no. <laughs> but the history, when I did history at, at, at secondary school, high school for the Americans, if there's any Americans on this, um, Whatever they told me to read, I'd read like three times as much. I've always read loads and loads of books. I read hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books. Um, and I would, I would, when I was learning IT security and IT in general, because I had to, in those days you had to learn everything about Unix and everything about the internet in order to be in the field of security because there was no training program for security. So I would go to Borders on Charing Cross Road and I would sit there and I would read two books and then I'd buy two books. And I would do that for like five or six hours every every weekend. Um, and then on the Sunday, I'd go to a different, I'd go to Waterstones and I'd see what books they had. And you were just waiting for decent books to come out because this is before the internet had any information. There was no YouTube. 
there was no like blogs. Blogs didn't even exist. So you had to read real books. And I got into the habit of reading books very, very, very quickly. Um, and I started to gravitate towards books that had practical uh, exercises in them. Um, and so, so then I just started doing certifications. And I didn't do a lot. I did like the MCSE and I did the Red Hat Certified Engineer, which was quite an interesting experience because people used to fail it a lot. But people used to fail it a lot because they had come from a Solaris background typically. And their brains couldn't get around um, the differences between Solaris, Unix, and from some microsystems and Linux. But if you were just a bit younger, as I was, like when I went to the Red Hat exam with the whole Unix admin team from, from Morgan Stanley, which is where I used to work, where there for 10 years, um, they all failed, I passed, but they all knew Unix better than I did. They just could not reformat their brains. So, um, so that, so that really helped me, but didn't help them. But anyway, back to answer your question, right. How did I get a real job in security? I'll tell you how I got a real job in security. If you put all those things together, understanding operating systems very well, having done a number of little jobs, I then got a job at Morgan Stanley. So I was working at Credit Suisse as an application support person. I got headhunted into Morgan Stanley. And application support for trading applications, so market trading applications, is about connectivity at the socket level. So what port is listening, what sockets are open, blah, 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 blah. And how quickly is the data flowing? So you learn things like TCP dump. Um, it wasn't TCP dump in those days. It was Snoop. You had to use Snoop. And in order to use Snoop, you had to be root in order to be, you know, blah, blah, blah. There's all these different things that you had to understand how they worked. And that sort of taught you how things could be done on a computer the right way. But also you could sometimes figure out how they could be done the wrong way if things went wrong. But anyway, so I was doing application support for trading applications. They were very technical applications. I went to uh, a headhunting session and Morgan Stanley hired me. And Morgan Stanley made Credit Suisse look non-technical. It was so, Credit Suisse was technical compared to anywhere else I'd ever been before. But Morgan Stanley was much more technical and everybody was a programmer. It was really a technology company pretending to be an investment bank. And um, we had people there who were like the official maintainers for Kerberos. We had a guy there who was the official maintainer for SendMail and PostFix, which were at the time were the biggest mail systems on the internet. And they just worked there and they got paid a fortune and they just knew everything. Um, so I learned from really good people, but. I didn't join as a security person. What actually happened was we had, um, so 57,000 employees. Some of the traders would have five or six PCs because in those days, a single PC wasn't powerful enough yeah. to do what the traders machine had to do. So there's hundreds of thousands of PCs and servers. And um, every day in Morgan Stanley, there was a Dr. Watson's error that would pop up. And Dr. Watson's error was this, sort of 1999 or 1990 to sort of 2004 generic error message that pops up when something crashes that you don't know why it's crashed or what the reason is. And it would give you some kind of crash time. It's not a blue screen. It's the step before that. It's an individual process crashing. And that would pop up on three or 4,000 machines every single day around the world where we were in 50 countries. So it's a very diverse problem to troubleshoot. And the head of PC engineering had looked at it, the head of... Um, uh, of architecture had looked at it. Everyone looked at it. No one could figure it out. And my boss uh, was a guy named Boj Ramkumar. He's still there now. I think he's a managing director now. A uh, really smart guy. And he um, he felt that it could be fixed and would, wouldn't give up. So he, he got a bunch of people in the room and said, all right, someone's going to fix this. Whoever fixes is going to get promotion. <laughs> so 
So I wrote I wrote a a Perl script that um, used the Windows thirty two API, and it wasn't a very complete way of doing it. If you had somebody with perhaps better programming skills or knew more about programming the operating system, um, the, the 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 program could be more complete. But the the program I wrote logged into every single machine in Morgan Stanley every single day in the morning as early as it possibly could. And it would get certain key information, which now you would call live response information from a forensics perspective. So things like what's, what processes are running, um, what network sockets are open, what IP addresses are you connected to, what did you authenticate against, what are the last um, programs to shut down, um, how much disk space is there, what are the versions of different um, in, you know, executables on the machine. So I'd collect all this, put it into a database, and this would just run, it would take hours because it had to go around the whole world. And um, and then the script would look for uh, intersections of, of, you know, cluster the, the machines. And using that, we found out that there was a process called var info, which is basically variable info. And it's a PC health application that we wrote ourselves at Morgan Stanley, and it wasn't running correctly on machines that had a certain patch level and of a few different DLLs. So I unloaded those DLLs and the problem never came back again. So I, I solved the problem by not fixing it, but by stopping it from happening. Yeah. So what that led to was I got a phone call from a guy named Brian Hayes. He was the head of networks and security and everything else. And um, he called me into his office and he goes, yeah, so we've got um, a security team here. And I said, I thought I was in trouble <laughs> because I was logged into every single machine for, for weeks. <laughs> right. well, I thought, oh, okay. I didn't think about asking anybody if this method was the right way to do it. Uh, and I'm going to come back to this point about doing something wrong and then learning from it, okay? Because that's actually really important. Um, I don't encourage it, but it helps sometimes. He called me in and he, and he goes, we have a team of security people in New York. And I said, okay, because New York was the brain trust for Morgan Stanley. Everyone was in New York that made the big decisions. And I was in London in Clary Wharf. And um, uh, would you like to join the team? I said, is there an opening? He says, yeah, there is. He said, okay, well, well when do I have the interview? He says, we already had the interview. Um, and what he meant was just what I did was basically, they could see what I was doing. And <laughs> They're watching you the whole time. <laughs> watching you the whole time. And, um, and they figured out what I was doing and they just wanted to see how far I would go and what I would do. And that's how I got the job. Like, that was it. I was the first person in, in, in Morgan Stanley in London to be in the IT security team. And there were only 18 people in the whole team. Now, if you go back there now, that's 2001, right? If you go back there now, there's a thousand people in the team. And, the, and our budget then was like 900K. Um, the budget now is over 200 million. Are they still using your fix? That's no. They used, they, 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 they evolved. It evolved into... So once I had done this, <clears throat> to find all the machines, I logged on to all of the switches. And on a, on a Cisco switch, there's something called a cam table, which is the... Um, it is the... Um, that's a very funny act now. Ask for forgiveness later. <laughs> only yeah, only right. if you're trying to do good work. <laughs> so I just yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's funny. But um, you go onto the switch with the script. The script, which, and you can, you can query a switch with SNMP, so simple network monitoring protocol. And you can get, uh, you, you can query the switch at a high level, then you can log on to the script, 
go into the right mode, and then you can see the CAM table, which is the MAC addresses, the physical addresses of the interface cards, um, and the IP addresses, and what switch port they're on. So the script evolved <clears throat> to be a disaster recovery tool in that um, we could figure out if a machine went down, if it was a trader's machine, first of all, we knew all the trader's machines, we could prioritize powering them up and we knew where they physically were. And then another guy built a graphical overlay. So we could actually say it's on this floor, in this corner, there's this many machines. And so scripting has always been quite big. And, and if you look at pen testing now, scripting is massive. You know, well, it has been for the last 25 years, but um, it's really big now. Yeah. So that's how I got into security. And when I had that job, it was just systems administration, system administration of of security devices. There was no major hacking happening. There was this threat that there'd be major hacking happening. This is 2001, 2002, 2003. Things started to get more interesting around 2004 um, when viruses evolved to be something that antivirus could keep up with. And you start to get worms, okay? And then in 2006, that's when all of that studying of the operating system and how operating systems really work. And I'll, I'll get to my point in a sec, actually came in useful. That was the first time I saw um, what was called uh, the Torpig Trojan. Yeah. And the Torpig Trojan would remain resident on an operating system once you'd cleaned it. So you could even reinstall and the Torpig Trojan would come back. And antivirus tools couldn't find it. So so one day I was, I was getting these repeat dial home alerts on the intrusion detection system. And everybody in my team had been to look at it and given up. <coughs> um, but then I went over to the machine. I started talking to a guy. Um, it was a pen tester from, from New York. Uh, it was Russian, but it was... Um, little does he know how often I use his people now to justify my work. Um, but, um, but, um, but he and I wrote some tools to try and identify... Um, all of the ways that all the different processes were communicating because there's there's more going on than you can see in Task Manager. Um, and so I, I said, now you'd have to do that because you can use Sys Internals Tool Suite. Um, and there's a specific tool that would have found this, uh, this Trojan, uh, the Torpig Trojan um, called Pipe Monitor or something like that. So it was, a, it was, this Trojan was communicating between the boot sector of the hard drive and the operating system using what's called named pipes which is a very loosely understood inter-process uh, and file um, communication uh, method. Uh, and that's when I thought, oh, this is really interesting. This is a different level of code here. This is not just copying itself or opening a network connection or copy or using a file space. It is trying to live. Um, and that's when it started to get really interesting. And then on, onwards from there, lots of other incidents. I mean, dozens of big incidents, but. Um, that's how I got into it and stayed interested. So the, the virus you were talking about just then <clears throat> is back in early 2000s. Uh, if, you know, say this had happened, if someone had been illegally downloading films at that point, mm -hmm. would that have been the sort of virus you could have picked up then? Maybe. I never really, in those days, it was such a, so you, you, one, first of all, in those days, file sharing uh, sites were, they didn't make any money. No. They weren't monetized um, advertising at that point. 
And so, yes, people used to infect you with viruses by embedding them into the files that you downloaded. I've, I've heard no, that. You've heard that? Have you heard that? <laughs> that's quite funny. Uh, that's funny. Um, but nowadays, obviously, everything that's free on the internet is only free because you're being advertised to. And what you do on their sites goes into your file so you can be advertised to more effectively. Um, but yeah, in those days, it, the internet wasn't monetized. It was so bland and, and uninteresting. It was a bun fight for all those people who wanted you to click, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, yeah. yeah, if, yeah. I, if I remember the stories I was told. Yeah. So, were told. <laughs> so moving swiftly on from me dropping myself in it online, um, what happened next then? So, so I take it to get more serious. Like, um, so I was I had been responsible for the systems administration of the security tools and then threat management. So that was patch management. Um, and then vulnerability scanning in its very much its infancy, and then um, incident response and forensics. Um, there's a blast from the past. LimeWire was safe. Some early, yeah. you know, <laughs> Thanks, Dave. That's the one that someone told me about years ago. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I'd, I'd done all of the key sort of cyber-ish functions. Where in those days we didn't call it cyber. In fact, if anyone called it cyber, you just laughed at them. Um, I remember going to a dinner and people were calling it cyber. And I said, what's cyber? I mean, the origin of the, origin of the word cyber is, is like... Doctor Who, isn't it? No, no. There's, it's like a Greek Latin word and it means predicting where to shoot, to shoot down an arrow or a missile. Um, so cyber is really about coordinated action, autom coordinated and automated action. Uh, it doesn't have anything to do with the word security um but, um, we, can, we can touch on um we can touch on buzzwords next because we've got a few of those to discuss later okay cool so so anyway so about 2008 i'd done most of the jobs in what you now call cyber and that was good because i was also running the penetration testing program so i knew what hacking looked like in great detail in fact i actually got the budget for the first pen test program when um a guy named jim rosenthal took over uh, security at Morgan Stanley and a lot of IT operations. He now runs a company called Blue Voyant, which is a massive US like equity funded um, security company. And he doesn't really know that much about security, but he learned because I um, he learned because I sent him a so he didn't know anything about security, right? He was just given security because people were given security so that they'd be a responsible adult responsible for all these mini hackers or wannabe hackers that were in the security team or just geek collection of geeks. And because it really was that in the in those days. And so I sent him, I sent him, he was in New York, I sent him a copy of Forbes magazine in internal mail that had a title of Have You Hacked Yourself? And this was all to do with um, Kevin Mitnick and like that generation of hackers talking about the importance of hacking companies, they're trying to build their own businesses, right? So I sent him a copy of this, and then my boss's boss in New York got called into his office and said, how much are we hacking ourselves? And he said, and George Sherman, his name was, he said, I don't know. Uh, let me ask Dex. And so he asked me, I said, not enough. He said, how much do you need? I said, a um, million dollars, which seemed like a lot of money at the time. I mean, one million dollars. And, um, <laughs> and, um, and he came back with three. I'm really, really burnt. Yeah, 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 he came back with three million. And so we had an application security program and a pen testing program. And it was one of the first companies that had done that to sort of realize the importance of application security and pen testing. Because you can test everything you want if you don't stop people building bad applications. And we had 10,000 applications that we built ourselves. So we had to learn how to build them. 
um, you weren't going to really solve the problem unless you did both. But I started both of those at, at Morgan Stanley, and then better people than me came along and did the AppSec stuff because I was never a very good developer. I was just a scripter. Um, but I was good at operating systems, so I could I could hack into things. Um, anyway, so I hired a lot of different pen testers. We did a lot of pen tests, and then that helped improve the incident response team. And this is something I still do now with 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 Bramfit, in that they help my operations operations team get better by testing them. And the ops guys see can they see what's happening? It's purple teaming. That's what we've been doing that for with BTL for about two years, um, and it's really improved our defense, but I was doing it back then in 2006, 2007. Anyway, this all paid off in 2008 when the Chinese hacked into Google because they actually didn't just hack into Google. They hacked into all the big companies that were doing business with Google and were trying to get in through the Google management devices that we had in our companies into Google. Um, what they didn't know is that the CIO of Google used to be the CIO of Morgan Stanley. And so he just called me directly once with the uh, FBI on the phone and said, you're hacking me. And I said, I thought you were hacking me. Definitely hacking me. And I was like, okay. So then we were involved in in the takedown that that um that stops what what was called the Aurora event. And then wow. Google went public and told the whole world this is what happened. And that was the first time a big company has told the whole world this is what really happened. This is how it worked. And then this whole expose of Chinese hacking units having different teams to do different activities all came out. And that's where this modern world of hacking sort of came from. Um. That was that was my first really big incident. Um, that was actual hacking, not just somebody has sent a file to the wrong place, or there is something unusual. We need your help to figure it out, or there's litigation, and we want you to do an actual malicious threat. This is actually a government attacker, and an attack that we couldn't understand on our own, and had to work with multiple companies. Um, and that that led to actually that's something quite interesting. That led to um, we started looking into rootkits a lot, and so and in memory forensics uh, to find processes that were hiding, um, and that led us to work with um, uh, a bunch of different companies. But one of those companies ended up getting hacked by Anonymous, and all of the all of our dealings with them, including me, if you search the Anonymous files, you just search my name, you'll see it in there. Um, all of that got taken by Anonymous, and and uh, and then then given to WikiLeaks. So. All of our all of our internal security plans were for WikiLeaks. <laughs> so then I left security. <laughs> you had enough of that then. Yeah, no, I was, I was just a timing. I didn't really leave for that reason. Um, I, I actually, I actually, I actually didn't get in any trouble for that because it wasn't my fault. But um, but um, just go, just going back back quickly, Dexter. Um, you mentioned they were the first company to kind of admit what had happened and go into detail yeah, about yeah. what happened. We still don't seem to be very good at that doing well the reason you, people aren't very good at it now is because of the potential for litigation so if you if you've exposed personal data through your breach and then you say we got hacked because we didn't patch java struts too like you know equifax then you your ceo went to the senate uh and so did the cio and the CISO, and they all lost their jobs and i think the ceo got sued so you know, that's why people don't tell you all the details now, but there is a reporting requirement now. In those days, there was no reporting requirement um, for a cyber attack. Because if you're, if you're CNI or critical national infrastructure now, like myself, you have to tell certain government agencies what has happened, what activity have you had. You have to appear before the board 
and give them statistics for what's happened so that the board members can protect themselves because they're personally liable in the UK for, for the security of the company. Um, so I go to the board all the time to talk about this, but in the press, yes, people try and cover up as much as possible what the actual cause was for two reasons. One, you don't, you don't want people to attack the same thing again because not everybody can patch everything overnight or fix everything overnight. And some things aren't easy to fix at all. Uh, and the other reason is just embarrassing sometimes, you know, but, um, I spent, so like when I left Morgan Stanley, I spent almost 10, seven, no, seven years, eight years, uh, seven years going to, I went to about 14 other companies. And usually I was called by a CISO that I had met during my time or someone who had become a CISO from Morgan Stanley, but had never done the incident response bit. And I'd done all the incident response which is a great way to start your career is, is the instant response side of things because you just take care of things, people start to trust you, and then you get time at the table to talk about what really matters. Um, but I, I had like 12, 14 jobs going to companies to help them understand what went wrong um, and uh, or, or what would go wrong if they didn't do something specific. And those are some very big companies. Like I've done it for BP. I've done it for HSBC. I've done it for Credit Suisse a couple of times. Um, uh, I've done it for the National Trust. I've done it for Willis Towers Watson. Um, and that's always the first thing they say. In fact, the first thing I say just to get the job is tell me about what incidents you have had that have gone well, and I'll tell you how to make sure that they all go well. And they either say, I haven't had any incidents, and I say, well, that means you're fucked. <laughs> <laughs> because you have had incidents. Everybody here has, has had incidents. You just don't know they've happened. So you're yeah. in even more trouble. Um, or they'll say what went wrong with their incident response process. And what was what will typically go wrong with the incident response process is the people aren't good enough or the people aren't embedded enough in technology because sometimes you have these sort of slightly broken relationships between IT security and IT. And if that isn't working very well... Um, I like the way you diplomatically put that sometimes. Yeah, well, you know... Something often, I mean, uh, <laughs> but I will, I've always made it my business to immediately get to know the head of infrastructure and the head of architecture. And the head of architecture is usually a dick, and the head of infrastructure is usually stressed. And well, the, it's, architects' lives are frustrating. You go to a whiteboard and you draw something, and then you go to a visio and you perfect it, and then you go into a room with a bunch of people who say, Oh, too late, we just bought SAP. <laughs> which is slow and painful for those of you who don't know what SAP is. Um, and so their lives are very frustrating. Whereas the operations guy's life is frustrating for a different reason. And that is that nobody wants to go back and pay to fix what you just fixed during an incident so that it doesn't happen again. They just assume that you'll keep taking it and taking it and taking it. So you go and become that guy's friend and he'll tell you what's going to go wrong. And sometimes or often what's going to go wrong will often have a security issue with it as well. It's either not patched or it has weak authentication or it's fragile in some other way, you know? Um, so, yeah. Where so, well, how, how, did you, how did you get from there to where you are now at Centrica? What happened to make you... Um, yeah, well... Consultancy piece, I suppose, is what you were doing, wasn't it, if you'd been dealing with 14 different companies? Yeah, what, yeah. I was what made you throw the towel in, Dexter? Well, I went to, I went to Centrica as a consultant. Dexter. Okay. Yeah, I went uh, the first six months. I was meant to be, I was meant to be uh, a contractor, and I was thinking, I'll, oh, maybe I'll ride this out for a year. 
uh, and then I'll move on to something else because it's such a long drive to Windsor and Staines, where the offices were from where I lived, which was South London. And um, I didn't really want to go, but the money was good. And when I got there, like the first day, I was in the car park. The very first day I was in the car park, I was parking the car. And my boss at the time, who was really into security, and he, he, knew, he knew a lot of people in the security world, and he'd, he'd been in the army, he was in the special forces. He took it really seriously. And his boss, the CEO, had come from BP. And a BP, uh, although I had actually helped them with an incident, um, it was a very specific kind of incident. BP's got the best security like that I've ever seen globally. Um, their whole incident response team is 24-7 from Texas. Okay, These guys are good old boys who know each other very well, who barbecue together, who study together, who work together. They've got great teamwork, and team is very important when it comes to incident response. Um, they've got application security people, they've got pen testers, they've got architects coming out their elbows and everything else. And um, so BP was really good. But the CEO came from BP, so he had an expect expectation for what security should be doing. So I got there the first day, boss calls me and he says, all right, so this is um, this is the phone number of our man at, at GCHQ. And I was like, oh, okay, all right, didn't expect that. And he goes, yeah, you've got to call him before the end of the day and tell him um, what your plan is. And I was like, right, okay. That's what my boss was like. He was really aggressive. And that was really helpful because if you ever needed backup, you would just go and tell somebody, sorry, you go and tell him that somebody says, what he wants to be done cannot be done. And then you wheel him out and let him deal with it. Yeah, like, you wouldn't even have to wheel him out. He 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 got out of a trap. Yeah, he just go, he would just call them and summon them. And he was really, really good friends with the CEO and he was really aggressive and just knew how to get things done. So anyway, so from the first day I knew it was a different kind of job in that they want me to have a briefing and then to brief um GCHQ on my very first day. And I was like, that's that's pretty intense. And then like by the end of the first week, I was making decisions to cancel other people's bad decisions. I had a two-day handover because the guy who was there before me couldn't handle my boss. So he just he's, he just left. And uh, well, actually, he'd been waiting for quite a long time, but he also couldn't stand my boss because my boss couldn't stand him. They didn't like they didn't get him at all. But he actually was a nice guy. He wrote down so much stuff for me, I couldn't believe it. Um, I haven't done anything for anybody else in the future. But I'm sure they'll figure it out. <laughs> it's the best way to learn, Dexter. Yeah. So. So the reason I stayed, so we got a lot of support initially. There was a lot to do, and it, it, I had done almost everything that they needed to do before. So I, I had it a vision in my head that I'll get it all right this time. Because you, you, you got, can always give yourself a score at the end of a sort of an interim or a consulting gig. Like, was that an A, B, or a C? And I wanted to get an A star. I just wanted to. So started off, and... Um, uh, started getting a few things right. And then uh, Equifax happened. Uh, so for those of you that don't know, Equifax is like the second biggest um, uh, credit rating agency in the world after Experian. And they were hacked uh, back in 2017 because they had um, they had a vulnerability on the website that they didn't patch. And when that happened, hundreds and hundreds, thousands of companies, um, customer data was stored with Equifax. And uh, it was taken. And so people had various levels of liability from that. Now, uh, Centrica owns British Gas. 
and British Gas was named in the newspaper as one of the companies whose customer data was affected. And British Gas hates being in the newspaper for bad reasons, and it's often in the newspaper for bad reasons. So the more you keep it out of the newspaper, the more senior you become. So I actually call, I actually make that my job description. My job is to keep you out of the newspaper. I don't call myself the CISO to other people in the senior leadership team. My anti-press team. <laughs> yeah. So so, but the other thing was that British Telecom BT was also in this dump and our CEO was the senior board director for BT. So both Centrica and BT, two massive companies, were trying to get information out of Equifax and nobody could get the information out of Equifax. Um, so actually, now that I remember the full story, Lewis actually features in this story as well. <laughs> Just for those who don't know, Lewis, um, Lewis Bramford is the CEO of Bramford Technology Labs, our sponsor today. Sorry yeah, but I've forgotten he was in this story. Okay, so this is this is what happened. This is how I went permanent. So Equifax has got is in the news for having a data breach that affects our customers and BT's customers. My boss calls me and says, the um, the the head of British Gas can't get Equifax on the telephone or to reply to an email because their whole world is asking them. Right, they ended up in 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 court. In the, in the, I think they were in the Supreme Court in the US and the CEO got fired, the CIO got fired, the CISO got fired. They all got fined millions and the company is barely recovered now. This is five years ago. But anyway, um, my boss says to me, Dexter, sometimes if you want to be the CISO, you've got to be the fucking CISO. This is a security incident. I said, it doesn't affect us, Mike. And he goes, well, we've got two managing directors with their dicks in their hands. Go and fix it. So I said, <laughs> okay, this is how he used to speak. You know, special forces people speak like this. Anyway, so he, uh, so I, this is Saturday morning, by the way, right? So I start calling, sorry, I start contacting people from Equifax's IT team on LinkedIn and um, offering them jobs and interviewing them until one of them explains to me how it happened. And, um, and once I got the explanation, I contacted the European vice president and I said, I know that you got hacked like this because you were irresponsible about this and you didn't patch that and now you've lost all our data. So I'd like a fucking phone call tomorrow morning at nine o'clock. And in the morning, uh, two of the managing directors from, uh, from British Gas were on the phone with, um, with the European vice president for Equifax. And then every single day until they went to the data protection office, uh, information, commissioners, information commissioner's office, to give their deposition, they were calling us before they went to see them. And that is how I went permanent because the CEO was so impressed. I didn't tell him exactly what I did or the fact that um, we we had to hire somebody for Equifax. <laughs> <laughs> Lewis had interviewed for me. <laughs> but um, so anyway... Um, it doesn't matter how you did it. It doesn't matter how I did it. What matters no. is I went to the board, I was summoned to the boardroom to give an update on Equifax. And the CEO got up out of his chair. This is a real big traditional boardroom, right? Like in a TV show. He gets up and he walks around the whole table and he comes around to my side and he, he went to shake my hand and he said, thank you for how well you handled that. And he was a real old English gentleman. This is, this is like really posh guy. And the only thing I could think at the time was, He's got very small hands. <laughs> his hand went into my hand. Like, Worked for the carnival. His hand kind of went in like that, and it just kind of stopped there. So I was like shaking his fingers like this. And I think, is this a posh thing, or is, is or his hands really small? Anyway, so 
Anyway, so I went back to my desk and my boss called me and he said, right, Ian, he was the CEO, Ian Khan wants you to go permanent. And I said, oh, well, we'll talk about it, you know? And he goes, no, no, he wants you to go permanent tomorrow. <laughs> he just found out you're a contractor and he wants you permanent tomorrow. So and he just broke down a number. And I said, see you tomorrow. <laughs> and um, and then we've got a lot more support. good way to get a job yeah incidents incidents and knowing when they are serious or when or when they are procedural there are a lot of procedural incidents and you can kind of you can kind of feel it sometimes um it doesn't mean they're not serious it just means that you will do A and then you will do B and then you'll do C and then you'll do D and then you'll do E. There are other incidents where you get the description and it is so fuzzy, you're like, mm, this isn't going to be good. We're going to do E and E is going to stop F happening. You know, A, B, C, D might still need to happen and might actually have happened. The good side of A and the bad side of A. So the, the bad side of A and the new stopping A from progressing but sometimes when they're fuzzy like that you're like we've got to be extreme here and just you know i've had a similar one where i cut the internet off the whole morgan stanley you've gone quiet dexter i don't know if it's me or whether it's maybe it's me let me see let's see if the audience can you hear me okay can you hear me Hold on, let's just check this. Um, if the audience can hear, can you hear me? No, he's lost his voice. Okay. Can you hear me, Roy, in the chat there? You can. Okay, brilliant. I think it's just your mic, Dexter. Okay, Dexter will be back in a sec. Just a couple of um, technical issues there. Let's hope that's him. Can you hear me now? Yes. That's it. Yes, what? I can. It's switched to my MacBook camera. How about that? So now I'm looking up here, but I should be looking at But at least we're an equal size now, Dexter, because before I looked like 14 times bigger than you, which really isn't the case, I'm sure. Okay, is that is that better? Perfect, yeah. All right, sorry about that. Um, where was I? I was talking about um, fuzzy incidents. Yeah. I mean, there's been so many incidents. There, there, another good example was the, the slammer worm. I don't know if those of you that... Um, uh, if you... If you have heard of Slammer, it was it was like one of the fastest spreading worms um, in history of worms. It spread across the whole internet in like eighteen minutes. But as it was, the reason it spread so quickly is because um, it affected uh, Microsoft SQL Server, and Microsoft SQL Server listens on uh, port one four three three, and uh, SQL Server was used on desktops for engineers and on servers. But it was also used on lots of internet sites. This is before everything in the world was firewalled by default, um, and before you know, sort of reverse proxies were, were prolific on the internet. So things were vulnerable on the internet. Um, you just needed one malformed UDP packet, um, and you could take over the whole server and become uh, local admin, and then you could repeat the attack on on your entire subnet. So when it started happening, I already knew about this, this vulnerability because the vulnerability, I didn't know about the worm, but I knew about the vulnerability. The vulnerability was discovered by Dave Litchfield, who, um, who I knew, who was a, a very well-known pen tester and security researcher back in the day. Um, and he had released uh, the, the 
advisory two years before the worm. This is when people didn't patch properly. So there was no patch Tuesday. Okay, like there's a patch Tuesday now and there's more frequent patches than that for Microsoft. But in these days, Microsoft didn't release patches very often. And if they did, people didn't apply them. Okay, and the patches used to actually come on a, on a DVD. Okay, in those days, um, you could download them, but people used to get uh, DVDs of these patches. Anyway, the worm is spread across the internet. I'm reading about it. I heard, heard about it somehow. I can't remember how I heard about it, but I called, um, this was at Morgan Stanley. So I called a guy named Steve Ruganitz. He was running to, uh, networks and security at the time. I said, we need to turn off the internet. Now, Morgan Stanley used to do about a billion dollars of business over the internet every single day, yeah. <laughs> like just in Europe, <laughs> okay? Well, maybe it was a bit more than Europe, but um, but you couldn't turn off the internet. And I got him on the call and said, we've got to turn the internet off now, or we will be out of the markets for a very long time. If we turn it off now, we'll be the only ones in the market. So we turned it off. And for about half an hour, there was just swearing and what a decision to make. <clears throat> yeah, it was a really big decision. And he was trying to make it, and I interrupted him. And he didn't like being interrupted. He was a, he was a US Army colonel, and he hated being interrupted. <laughs> and he was a managing director, and I was a I was a vice president, which was two ranks below a managing director in Morgan Stanley. Anyway, so um, I convinced him. I said, Steve, I've got the most information right now. I'm telling you, turn off the internet right now. And he said, okay, do it. So he did it. Uh, the rest of the world got taken out. Morgan Stanley came back online like an hour and a half later with port 1433 and 1434 blocked at our firewalls at the perimeter and on the core uh, switches. So you could not call routers, sorry, you couldn't you couldn't infect us anymore. And then we just went and physically turned off every SQL server we could find. I was walking along the floors, asking developers, have you got SQL server developer edition? He goes, yep, yeah. I said, turn it off. He goes, well, I'm working, I said, turn it off, turn it off. And we just turned off everybody's machines. And then we patched and then we were back in the market and um, we made so much money that week you know, that's that's a kind of a fuzzy extreme um, incident. It goes to show, though, doesn't it, the importance of being able to communicate to the board. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. The fact that you had the relationship with him, you know, whether he was a retired colonel or what, that you could go in and talk to him like that or have to go in and talk to him like that. I think without wanting to be critical of some people I've spoken to in the industry, I've spoken to a fair few CISOs now. Not many of them have that ability. You've got to use um, well, a few things. It should be easier now, thanks to Putin. I mean, I, 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 in those days, it wasn't easy. So you, you have to come, you have to, first of all, what I do when I, go, when I go into a job initially, I probably wouldn't do this again, but um, it's what got me here. What got me here is wherever I go, everything is my problem, okay? Everything, I don't care what it is, it's my problem. I take over whatever is not going well not just security. So at Centrica, I have been running operations, IT operations for the last nine months, in addition to security. And the reason for that was incidents were taking too long and the incident response team wasn't working very well. And um, although they were good people, they're, 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 they have to know how to work with their partners and the partners have to know how to work with them and the communication has to be great and the teamwork has to be great. And that was breaking down. So I stepped in and ran IT operations for nine months. Um, I step back out now, and it's, it seems to be holding up. But I, I will take on any problem that other people don't want to deal with, and I will stay late to resolve that problem. And that might mean staying late for six months. It might mean moving to the country that the problem is in. And then what happens is you you step back from that to you're in a meeting one day, and somebody's about to do something stupid, and you can say, "I'll give you three good reasons why you shouldn't do that." 
and they'll go, ah, well, this is the guy that usually comes along when the shit hits the fan. Yeah. So maybe we should listen to him. And then you start off there. You start, well, you start off actually doing the work. And then you benefit from the experience. And then you start to become a bit more strategic, which is, which is where I am, which is where I've been for the last sort of five years I've been a centric coach. It's, it's been gradually getting more strategic. But year one and two was a lot of time in the war room. It's like a, it's like a bun fight. Yeah, yeah. Just, right. just getting getting deep with things. Um, Dexter, so, I'm conscious we've got like 10 minutes left. Oh, really? And I haven't actually asked you any of the three questions. I okay, ask me a question quickly. <laughs> you, you've, answered, you've answered one already, which is what were your successes? I think you've probably covered off. You've definitely covered off a few of them. Is there, are there any others before I move on to the next question that you haven't talked about? I would say Centrica is my greatest success. Um, I mean, there's, there's technical things that I've done in the past that are fulfilling, but um, at Centrica, I've built a team where I think most of my team will go on to be CISOs. Most of my leadership team will go on to be CISOs in the future. Um, they've been, they were picked for their technical ability primarily um, or their experience. And um, I think it's very important to have strong technical ability. Um, they take on lots of different challenges and, and they are thriving in general uh, under those challenges. Um, and we've done interesting work. We've done all the basic stuff that you would normally do. Um, and we're getting to be to the point where we're doing very mature stuff. So my organization now, we have all these different ranking systems, but my, um, in terms of fulfillment at work, the IT security team has the highest engagement scores for um, technology and one of the highest engagement scores for the whole of Centrica, and that includes the trading team. So we're right up there with the trading team, the people who make the big money, okay? And the, the people are fulfilled, so they're enjoying their work. When it comes to external assessments of our security by companies like Security Scorecard, BitSight, these other, comp these other rating companies, um, we typically rank one point below the national grid. The national grid is security's half of that's done by GCHQ, yeah. And they've got hundreds of people in their security team. My security team's like 100 people. So we're, you know, a quarter of the size, but um, one point behind in, in effectiveness. And to use a maritime analogy, a fairly tight ship. By the yeah, it's a very tight ship. And um, most things can now be done without me, which is why I was, partly why I was able to go and sort another problem out. And why, um, and why, you're allowed, and why you can afford to be on here talking to me today, Dexter. Well, which... there you go. Which le leads me on to the to the actual question I was meant to ask you today, which is what the challenges or the big challenges are in the energy industry at the moment. Russia, and um, and what are they going to do? How serious is it going to be, and how prepared are we? So, um, did I did I see you guys in the press last week or the week before have just negotiated some energy contracts? Yeah, so that's going to agitate people. Yeah. <laughs> We have we have negotiated uh, a deal to secure um, uh, six percent of the UK's uh, gas demand from from Norway from a company called Equinor, and um, that's the kind of thing that actually pisses off the Russians. Okay, because we are not only are we not buying them anymore, but we're letting them know that for the next five years we will never need to buy it from them. So even if they stop the war now, make amends, we won't buy it from them, and that that provokes their hackers and the people that they protect in terms of ransomware gangs, which we worry about a lot. Um, we worry about it tactically in that we are prepared. So we've spent, since I got there, two of our tenants of our security program are one, prepare for ransomware. And we've always thought of Russia as the primary attacker. And two, reduce dwell time. 
Okay, dwell time being the amount of time an attacker can be on my network um, before I find them. Yeah. I'll give you some examples. Okay, so for, to deal with the ransomware and the Russia thing, we've started a new project called the, the Minimum Viable Company. And in the Minimum Viable Company, what we're doing is we've got business analysts working with the business to build a great deal more detail into disaster recovery plans. So we know the specific sequence of applications, permissions, settings, environments that need to be built for our business to not go out of business, okay? And to build that in the course of 48 hours to a week, okay? 48 hours for the trading, a week for the British Gas Services Company. Um, that project is is was my brainchild last June before the situation got to where it is now. It just looked like it was going to be. And talking to some of the companies that I rely upon, such as BTL and others, they all felt it was getting more serious as well. And so um, I got that funded, that's going well. Um, we, we're not just trying to stop the attack, we're making sure that if the defences that we have in great depth are overcome somehow, that we can recover quickly. And we're, we're practising that now. So we have rehearsals. We've, I've got to go do a rehearsal with the board in a couple of months' time. Uh, we have alternative communications uh, methodologies, all that kind of stuff. Um, that, is, that is what I'm mainly worried about is... So, you, so would you say then, based on based on that, ransomware is probably the biggest concern yeah, that you've got. Yeah, definitely. And that's why we so that, that's why we do the prep on the purple teaming. So we um, so the guys, some of them might be on the phone. I don't know, but what they do is they use this tool um, to stimulate. Sorry, sim, not stimulate. Simulate. You don't want to stimulate the APTs. Not, not they, on a they yeah, they simulate the um, attack methods of all the different known APTs that are that are catalogued and then they, they use their skills to copy those attacks and then enhance those attacks and then our operations team watch and see where they can see it triggering and if we can't see anything they keep doing it until they can find it. Um, that is to get us faster and to reduce dwell time uh, and improve our defense. But uh, We've had a couple of incidents recently both one was a uh, Russian and one was um, we don't know who but both incidents from initial compromise uh, and it wasn't a core compromise it was a compromise of just a, a, a user and then a franchisee um both were less than 52 minutes from start to end so contained completely and and attacker cut off that's pretty quick that's very quick yeah yeah um okay well, we've got five, five minutes left so thinking back to i've just been to two conferences my first ever Info security conferences. Been to RSA with Lewis, and then went to Info Security in London last okay. week on my own. All I saw at both of them were two particular statements or two particular buzzwords. Um, I want to ask your opinion on both. So the first one is shift left. I've heard differing opinions on this. I want to know what it means to you as a CISO. Um, shift left. Shift left is a nice idea. Shift left, shift left is a nice idea that rarely works because people are only going to let you shift left as long as it does not inconvenience them. I much prefer real authority to shift left. Shift left just basically means I want security involved at the architecture stage or the design stage or the ideation stage. And if you're in the room, and I, as I have been hundreds of times, and they say we want to use this third party to send emails on behalf of us. And I go, well, that's great, except for they haven't got DBARC, and they haven't got SPF, and they haven't got DKIM, all these other email protections. I go, great, can you leave the room? And <laughs> the deal gets done. 
<laughs> What's better is to take over all the email system. So what I've done is taken over the email system, take over the DNS system, take over the firewall approval system. And then when they try and do it, you go, oh, sorry, it's not going to work. And they're going to go, why? You say, well, it's not going to work because I'm not going to let it work because it's not secure. Oh, well, we need it to do, to do this for the business. I said, well, you better go and tell the, the, the CEO then that you want it to be insecure. And just put it that way. Because I'll tell him he wants it to be secure. Yeah. So shift left is a nice word. It's so is it, a bit, is it a bit like um, the other word that I hear a lot of, security champions then? Security champions are the people that get delegated to when the people that you really wanted to think about security can't be bothered. Okay. <laughs> um, and they get they get they get into it because they're into it and sometimes 10 years later they come back and say hello to me on linkedin uh and i just think god that guy took a lot of shit <laughs> because for nothing. Yeah. for nothing because because like we have we have the people who click the most on phishing attacks are the most senior people yeah okay and though but those are the people that you want to be security champions to educate them but they just they're not interested they've got too much other stuff to do so security champions are necessary you do pick up some interesting things it helps with appsec it doesn't help with phishing you know what happens with it when they when they get involved with phishing um is that they people send them all the phishing emails that they've seen. is this a phishing they become like a like a service desk <laughs> um but um yeah. I mean, it's, it's it's back to the buzzwords, though, isn't it? You know, cyber security um, being the buzzword that's been around for the longest, I suppose. Well, now. now it works because it didn't work when I was first in security, but now it works because you don't have to say anything else about what you do when you get taken to places and people say, what do you do? And they all look at cybersecurity and they go, oh, right, okay. It's like saying I'm a vegan. People don't talk to you. It's, or it's like saying you work in financial services. You get the same response there as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People just switch off. Okay, we've got one minute left. Last buzzwords I heard at the conferences were zero trust. Do you want me to these questions? Sorry, say again. Zero trust. Do you want me to reply to these comments? Or oh, that yes. If, you, if you've got time, that'd be great, yeah. Um, well, zero trust quickly, um, hard to do. Most uh, networks are a mixed mesh of different things and implementing zero trust requires a lot of uniformity. So um, we are looking at it, but it's not quite yet. Okay. Military grade. I love military grade. Military grade means 13 different antiviruses on your laptop because <laughs> the military can't decide which ones to spend their money on this year. Next gen is next gen is so last year. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> next gen, you should be, now it's X. Now everything's, now everything's X. And AI, AI just means that my text file full of rules that I wrote is bigger than your text file for the rules that you but wrote. It, it also means if you're looking to get funding from venture capitalists, if oh, you've yeah, got AI in it, you're yeah. in. I'll tell yeah. you a funny story about AI. The, big, the biggest outage that my security team has ever caused has been when the AI system broke and when we found out how the AI network anomaly detection system actually worked. Well, there's a text file with all the rules in it it gets read before the AI is allowed to do its work. I'm like, right, okay, but it's not AI. Then. It's not AI at all. I, w I wonder how many of these are actually AI that purport to be, but I'm, I'm not an expert, so I'm not going to make any comment. Um, I think we've covered off all the questions in the chat. Is there, is there anything quantum blockchain? There we go, Stuart. There's one at the well, Blockchain, why can't you do it with a database? And then um, yeah. quantum machine learning. Then you wouldn't be able to buy an NFT, would you? No, <laughs> then you wouldn't be able to buy a cartoon, no. Um, Dropped eighty five percent in value. Um, I suppose Williams just dropped in. Hey, William, good to see you on here. Um, so, quantum computing. Obviously, we're hearing quantum proof a lot now, aren't we? As well, which is um, technical term bollocks, perhaps. Yeah. 
Well, so I went to I went to see Cambridge Quantum Computing, um, which is one of the quantum computing companies in the UK, and um, they tried to explain it all to me, and I didn't really get any application for it for my business, but they did they did seem really excited about it. <laughs> if, you've got, if you've got a PhD in it's yeah, it's really cool. But otherwise, it's quite hard. I just I just know that they're going to hack all of the passwords of all of the Excel spreadsheets that we tried to protect really quickly. Really yeah. quickly. <laughs> yeah, that's all I know. I think that's all I need to know at the moment. So I'm sticking with that. Um, Dexter, any any wise words before we wrap it up? Uh, learn to hack. The best advice I can give you is um, work towards your OSCP. Uh, as early as you can in your career. If you want to be, uh, I did mine when I was already a CISO, uh, but I kind of knew half of it already. But um, the the benefits of going through that process, and it's it's a constantly improving exam, uh, will help you a lot when you have to make on the spot decisions as a CISO or as a head of security architecture or head of security consulting um, or in an incident response situation to know what else could happen. And when you get people who, who, who understand hacking properly, you, you will find people who can prioritize the what is the most important piece of work to be done in your security team. So, yeah, I would look into the uh, OSCP as the, the standard, I hope, becomes the standard for future CISOs so that we have more sensible people making logical decisions because they know what can really happen. Because so you're not necessarily going to have as many jobs as I had and how many incidents as I had. So knowing what could actually happen technically can compensate for a lot of these jobs. And it's, it's, the, it's the experience you've had, Dexter, that's made you who you are now, isn't it? And yeah. dealing with all those different incidents. Um, final one from me then. If, if anyone who is watching is aspiring to be a CISO, if you haven't picked up enough nuggets throughout this and the OSCP comment at the end, I'll just ask Dexter quickly, any tips for those who are looking to move to the next level? You mentioned you had some in the team at Sendrica who you thought would become CISOs. What is it that makes you think they're ready for that? Uh, so, okay, a couple of things. First of all, the best way to become a CISO is to become realistic. And the realistic thing is that you're not going to have it as easy as the CISO that you currently work for appears to have it, okay? Because the only reason it's easy for that person is because it was fucking hard four or five times in a row, okay? Yeah. And the techniques, the negotiation techniques, the communication techniques, the way you hold yourself, the way you write, the way you deal with incidents, who you inform, how quickly you inform them, when you don't inform them, when you make decisions, when you don't make decisions, all this kind of stuff takes experience. So it will always be difficult. Because it's going to be difficult, my best advice I can give you is go somewhere that is 10 years behind the company that you're currently in. Like Go back in time and people will think you're a genius okay? because you will know what's going on. And that allows you to step up. I did it. When I left Morgan Stanley, I went from Morgan Stanley, which was the most technical place I ever worked, to Royal Mail Group. Okay? And that's how I became the head of information security. I walked in there. They thought I was from the future. I used to walk around <laughs> saying, you don't get it. Your kids are going to love it. Okay? <laughs> and they, I, it was so easy, technically. So I could deal with the politics side of things. If it's hard technically, and it's hard politics-wise, it's a very horrible place to be. So... Do that. 
Thank you. Dexter, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, hopefully I'll get to catch up with you again soon. I think there's some yeah. summer events coming up for Bramfit. We might even get to meet in person, but thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you everybody for listening. And I'll, uh, if I'll go back through this, if I can, if I can, once I leave this chat, I don't know if I can or not, but I'll, uh, if there's any interesting questions, just ping them to me. So I will do. Thank you so much, Dexter. Thanks a lot. Take care. Everyone, I think you'll agree um, what an insightful chat that was with Mr. Casey. Uh, for those of you who are watching this live, thank you very much. And thanks for jumping in the questions. For those of you who are watching it post, please, please like and subscribe to the channel. We will be having more of these events. They're going to be weekly. Our next CISO coming up to a time to be confirmed. I think it's going to be next Friday, round about six o'clock central time, US time. So quite late for us here in the UK. We've got Christopher Russell, who's the CISO of T0, someone I've known for about a year, a top guy as well, who I hope we'll learn lots and lots from. Again, if there's any of you watching who are CISOs who'd like to be on the show in the future, please drop me a message to simon at info-sec.live and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. I'll play you out quickly with a little stinger from um, Bramfit, our sponsors, who without them, this would not be possible. Everyone, thank you so, so much for joining us today. See you later.